0: State your position, state your reason, give the supporting evidence, and then go back to your position. Hey there. Welcome to
1: Wait. You what? You got to say it like that, like a question, like someone's just told you something shocking. Because that's pretty much the idea of this podcast. We hear people's surprising stories of struggle, lived experience, self discovery, and what they've had to learn from those experiences. Some weeks you walk away with a new perspective and some weeks you walk away with some really practical advice that you can incorporate into your own life. And you know what, this week, I think it might be the latter. We're talking to a hostage negotiator about how we can be more persuasive in our everyday lives. You probably have an image in your head of what hostage negotiators are like. Tough talking, put the gun down, do this or this is going to happen, you know. This is going to end up bad for you, John. There's only two ways out of here.
0: Jail or dead. Put the gun down, John. Yep, we've all seen the movies. Well, meet Sue Williams. Hi, I'm Sue Williams. I'm from London and I'm a hostage negotiator. That sounds like a game show. Someone introduced me on a game show. I'm talking to Sue from what I think
1: is her living room. She's sitting in front of a window that looks out onto a leafy green backyard. Lots of trees. It's morning in London, about 11am, I think, and she's sipping out of a white mug that has three little brown dash hounds on it. Yeah, when I was a child, I had dash hounds. Sue is upbeat and has a really sunny demeanour, but Sue has had a lifetime of seeing things that aren't sunny.
0: I was a a detective investigating serious crimes in a part of North London, north of the city.
1: Sue joined the police force as a teenager and her reason for doing so was always
0: very clear. You join to make a difference, you join to help people. Somehow along the way, through nobody's individual fault, but those original objectives get lost. And I, I was just thinking, how can I really help people? What can I do for people? Particularly, what can I do for victims of crime when when you look somebody in the eye who's just had their son murdered what what, what did i truly feel i could do i couldn't promise them justice i certainly couldn't bring that loved one back and um one of my supervisors he i think he recognized something in me that i didn't recognize myself and just thought that um I might have the qualities that it takes to be a, a good hostage negotiator. And just like that, it clicked. Sue had found her way to actually make a difference.
1: She loved the way that the training made her see the world.
0: You're, you're trained from very early on to um, step out of your worldview. You know, our worldview is made up of our upbringing, our education, our culture, our life experiences, and we're pretty stuck in our own worldview. And that's our default position for everything. And so it's, it's quite emboldening, really, when you learn how to step out of that worldview and see somebody else's side of the situation. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to agree with them. Just because you see somebody's point of view doesn't mean you agree with that point of view. But when you, when you can make that jump, it's, it's very empowering. So on today's episode,
1: Sue is going to tell us how she's able to step outside her worldview to be able to negotiate with hostage takers in such high-pressure situations, and how we can use similar negotiation skills in our comparatively less high-pressure everyday negotiations. Hostage negotiations come in all shapes and sizes.
0: Some are really long. So the longest would be five years, just over five years. Some are really short. The shortest was 45 minutes. I think the 45-minute guy was drunk. Uh, He was holding somebody um, at home because they'd had a very, very stupid disagreement um, about a pizza. It didn't come with the right toppings. Did he specify the toppings that he wanted versus the <laughs> toppings he got? I can't remember now, but I I know that the uh, the person that was responsible for the pizza was actually detained in a in a cupboard, or a, not a cupboard, a, yeah, a, ca- a cupboard under the stairs. But fortunately, they only took forty five minutes, so that was good. There are heaps of different types of hostage
1: situations. There's the one you might know well from movies that you probably think about more than others. As
0: a result, there would be the ordinary, straightforward. <laughs> The way I said that made it sound a bit simple, but it isn't. But you know what I mean? The straightforward criminal kidnap, where somebody kidnaps somebody, they want something, usually money, in return for their safe release. But nowadays, because of social media, we have the copy caller. So somebody who actually pretends to have the hostage, either where there is a genuine hostage, somebody else has got them, or actually there's been no no kidnapping at all. Then there's something called the express kidnap. Which we would probably classify as a robbery here, but where somebody is taken at gunpoint or knife point to an ATM and and money is taken out. The tiger kidnap. That is where, give an example, supposing you were the manager of of a supermarket Your home might be invaded, they would tie up your partner, take you back to the supermarket out of hours to get some money. Allegedly, it's called Tiger because it all happens very fast. The child kidnap? Children are kidnapped for many reasons, sometimes domestic domestic reasons. And Sue didn't want to say the word pirates, but kind of yes, kind of pirates. Maritime kidnap, so the sea hijackings. Some people like to call them pirates, but... I think that gives them quite a colourful and romantic title for what really is just a bunch of, I nearly said a rude word then, but badass criminals, that's what they are really, but people call them pirates. Then there's the, the political kidnapping where somebody is taken. And the list goes on.
1: Plane hijackings, human trafficking... Human shields. shields. But, um, going back a few decades, there were human shield kidnappings. And every single hostage situation is so different that Sue treats it like a learning experience every time.
0: It varies across the world and, and there isn't one size fits all and there isn't there isn't a script. In fact, every single one I do, I still learn something. There's still some something different about this one that has never happened before. So, yeah, still learning. And what is the hardest thing about the job, do you think? The hardest thing for me and and also for families is very occasionally we begin a negotiation, we have proof of life, and then we just don't hear anything. So we don't hear anything from the bad guys. We don't hear anything from the hostage. We don't hear anything in the media. We don't hear anything from associates. And And then the months go by and the years go by and you just don't know. And, and I find that the hardest, and it must be incredibly hard for families because they've got no closure and they spend the rest of their, their lives really sometimes always hoping that their loved one is still alive. But, of course, the chances are they, they probably aren't, but we never really know. So, so the not knowing is, is the hardest aspect of the job, I think.
1: You may have heard a second ago Sue said that she gets proof of life.
0: What exactly is this? So it's it's no secret. Movies have been made about it. We ask a question that only the hostage will know the answer to. And when I first started this type of work, that was quite easy. You would just think of a question. The obvious one in those days was what was the name of your first pet? It's not so easy nowadays because particularly young people put their whole lives on social media. The social media account can be cracked quite easily. So. We have to give a little bit more thought now to proof of life questions than perhaps we did in the past because of um, social media. But basically, it's a question that um, isn't political, isn't religion, isn't religious rather, uh, doesn't show a Western decadence. And more importantly, it translates in a a simple and, and easy way, because obviously, mostly we have to translate these questions. So you send over the question. You don't always get an answer, but that doesn't mean the term proof of life tends to indicate that if you don't get a reply, they're they're not still alive. And that most definitely isn't the case, but you have to convince families that. But when you do get the reply, again, it's a good feeling because you know that it's a baby step forward to progress. What's a negotiation that sticks with you? There are so many kidnaps that go on throughout the world that we really don't know about. But of the reported statistics that we have, about between, it fluctuates, but between 6%, 4% actually don't make it. So they they don't get to to come home after after a negotiation or any other process. Um, And I suppose it would be the, the very few cases where we haven't managed to bring the hostage home. They're the ones that you think about. And they're the ones that initially you think, did we miss anything? What could we have done? So I suppose those, out of all the hundreds of successful ones, it it would be the handful that that weren't successful that you think about more more than any others.
1: You have been contacted before by someone online asking for your help. On LinkedIn, actually, what happened in this situation?
0: Occasionally I I get strange requests and well to be frank i get some real messages from weirdos so uh, i i'm always a bit skeptical with some of the the um the messages that i received via that medium but one came in quite recently actually and it was uh, about a family whose father who was being held kidnapped in the middle east and after i'd checked it out, done all the, the due diligence. It, it did seem that it was a, a genuine cry for help, really. And I was able to guide them, guide this ordinary family through an extraordinary experience and um, pleased to say that it, it all came out all right and my scepticism was uh, was not valid. And this is
1: the reason that Sue does what she does. When I ask her what the most rewarding thing about her job is, she answers... Any situation where the hostage comes home?
0: Sometimes they come home not too well. Sometimes they come home with serious medical issues. But the most important thing is that, that, that they do actually come home. What still amazes me actually, Erica, is when I know that the former hostage is on their way home, not when they've been released because that still doesn't mean they're safe, but when I actually know that they're on their way home, I still get this buzz which has, been, which has never left me. And it's always a great moment of excitement, despite all the challenges. I do feel, I do feel really privileged to be doing this sort of work. So, even now, after all this time, the, the proudest moment is when you know they are on their way home.
1: I know it does seem a bit mundane after talking about hostage scenarios, and um, you know, you see such high stress situations uh, talking about everyday life but obviously negotiation does happen in everyday life in normal scenarios. What are some examples of things that people face every day that involve negotiation?
0: Yeah you're right every day um, there's as, as a negotiation if you're a if you're a lawyer there's a whole string of negotiations that, that you're involved with in, in your employment If you want to get a table in a good restaurant, you've got to negotiate your way into one of those, particularly these days as the numbers are limited. We negotiate with children. We negotiate with authorities.
1: Sue says there's a bunch of negotiation tools that are transferable across any kind of negotiation, whether it's a hostage situation or you talking to a colleague at work. The first one is reciprocity. So
0: I've done something for you. You you do something for me. That's a very common one. Getting somebody to like us, people want to do business or they want to do favours for people that are both quite similar to them, but also that they like. So working on, on getting someone to like you. Reframe the mindset, reframe their mindset, reframe yours. That as I said before, this isn't a conflict, it's a challenge. If you like, even treat it as a game, if, if you know, if it's not that serious, treat, treat it as a game. I think that's quite good practice.
1: Another one you might have seen in hostage negotiations in movies is storytelling and visualization. So, when you're speaking to someone, paint a picture with your words of
0: what you want to happen. A story can actually bring to life an ordinary statement, and that can be really powerful as well. So, asking somebody to visualize, well, this is what I think it would look like, and actually visualize the story of whatever it is you're negotiating. Tell the story of what you think it would look like in a very in a very sunshine way and then by actually painting the picture you, you've covered a thousand words and got, and got the person to visualize what success or what your opinion of success can actually look like it's very powerful storytelling visual, visualization excellent tools to use repetition is good um, particularly if you can get the person to say yes more times than they want to say yes because then they've got used to the habit so repetition is a very good tactic
1: Sue says it's also really important to have a reason for what
0: you're negotiating. So there's a really handy mnemonic that, that, that I think is quite good. And it's about state your position, state your reason, give the supporting evidence, and then go back to your position. And I think that can be that can be quite convincing as well. So let me try to give you an example of this position. I think we should have pizza for dinner.
1: Reason. Because it is really yum. <laughs> evidence. Last time we had pizza from the place down the road, you said it was the best pizza you'd had in ages. And restate your position. I think we should have pizza. (laughs) Surely you guys can do better than that, but you get what I'm saying. Sue also says you just can't be fake during a negotiation.
0: When you're doing all of this, the one thing is you've got to be authentic. You've got to be true to yourself and be authentic. And even though we negotiate in different cultures, and culture plays a huge part in negotiation, it really does research it learn it adapt your negotiation style but don't try and be something that that you're truly not and then of course there's there's the social proof if other people are doing something then we want to do it so if in your negotiations you manage to give the evidence that other people are doing it competitors are doing it so it's social proof so you must be thinking about doing it that can be quite a a powerful observation: social proof. Sue says there is one tool to rule them all, and it is the magic bullet. Really, is listening. A lot of people think that being a hostage negotiator is about fancy words and being a good wordsmith, but actually, it isn't. It's about listening, truly listening—not just hearing, but really listening. And and until you um you go into this world of of it's called active listening or, or extreme listening. You really just don't hear things anymore. You you move from hearing somebody to listening to somebody. And again, that's, that's a really powerful ability to be able to do that. And, and ironically, one of the main reasons that we don't listen when someone is talking is that mentally we are preparing the answer we're about to give them. So in a nutshell, we're replying to something we're not properly listening to. So, yeah, enhancing your listening skills, learning how to do, making active making listening an action, a positive action, instead of just just something that that happens inactively.
1: Going back to your role as a hostage negotiator, say that you're faced with a situation where someone is asking for something, maybe it's, it's money and they have someone hostage. You say you can't just hear, you have to listen. What might be the undertone in that situation? What are you listening for?
0: The, the, the obvious the words but you're also listening to the emotion you're, you're trying to ascertain the body language which isn't always easy if, if you're not there but within what they're saying you're looking for the hooks are they giving me the true motivation are they negotiated on behalf of somebody else are they are they the real hostage takers obviously we have to establish that another thing that
1: sue looks for is whether the person taking the hostages looks up to anyone or has any heroes.
0: And why am I looking for their heroes, person, organisation, religion, tribe? What could it be that will influence them? And sometimes the people I need to speak to about influence uh, are not necessarily good people. You know, warlords, convicted criminals, convicted terrorists. But if if talking to bad people is going to get good people home, then, you know, I'm up for that. So that's what I'm looking for really while I'm doing the listening. Listening for the hooks, what they're likely to be influenced by, you, you also, as, as a secondary objective, just ensuring the welfare of the hostages as well. You, you can't completely disregard them. You obviously have to make sure that they're being kept in reasonable health. What are some negotiation no-nos? The first one is definitely don't, don't lie. OK, stretch the truth, be imaginable with the truth, but don't actually tell an outright lie. Because if you got caught out on a lie, then it's just like a deck of cards, the whole thing's going to collapse, no matter how much work you've put it into it up to there. Having said that, and unless you are negotiating with a suicide bomber, but as that's quite remote chance of that happening. And I guess the second thing is... Um, you don't want a toxic relationship with your counterpart. If you're both very toxic to each other, then, then that's not going to work. And so find the cause of that and rectify it. So I, I would just say, yeah, don't um, don't carry on if the whole atmosphere is a, is a bad one.
1: There are also some core principles of negotiation that are important to keep in mind before entering into a negotiation. The first one is remember that there's two things
0: in any negotiation. There's the person and there is the issue that you are negotiating. Don't let one spoil the other one. So separate the person from from the issue. So negotiate the interest over your position. That's why good negotiators should not have any sort of an ego, because it's not about you, it's about the issue. So that would be the first principle, um, interest over position. Another one is to make sure that what you're suggesting doesn't just favour you. Promote options or suggestions that mutually benefit both sides. And also, before you go in, have a BATNA, a -A B-A-T-N-A. Best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And I would say definitely one of the principles is is know your BATNA. So make sure you have a plan B in common parlance, I would say. And, of course, whilst you're using all these principles... It's helpful if you use your ears more more than you use your mouth. Um, And although not a principle, I can't really overstate the importance of good preparation. Before you go into any sort of important negotiation or communication, you should have done your homework. Know as much as you can about your counterpart, their organization, the incident. Know what may have worked in the past, doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna work this time, but it's worth a consideration research your bottom line know your bottom line know your timelines know your concessions and prioritize your concessions putting time aside before a negotiation we, we don't do it often enough because we're all busy people but it, but it's a really really important aspect of preparation and listening and it's definitely up there with the with the principles as well I think
1: you mentioned something um, a second ago about putting the person in the negotiation into separate categories, which I absolutely love. It can be very difficult because even in my personal life, you know, if I have a disagreement with my partner, we think something should be done differently. I think one thing, he thinks another thing. How do I stop my emotions from impacting a negotiation? How can you be mindful of
0: that? Yeah, I think you said the right word there, mindful. Recognise it. So recognise the emotion. If it's a passion or an emotion, it's a fine line between the two of them, but passion in a negotiation can be can be helpful but when I'm working with a team and we are negotiating there's so much going on that we're not in control of but the one thing that we are in control of and we have to be is, is our emotion so recognize what emotion you're feeling mentally deal with it in your head later on in quiet time in peace time unpack it if you want to unpack it yourself but really and truly you should not let the other side know that you are getting emotional about this because it could be perceived as a as a weakness personally I've got this really old tatty book um, which I I record was there any different nuance was there anything different about this was there something that worked on this one and I, I usually put down all my personal thoughts in this tatty book which is jokingly called the princess's diaries, I don't know why. <laughs> um, and, and But what really is important is you have to be ready to take on the next negotiation. And so as I finish one and have totally put it to bed as it were, I, I forget about it. That, that's why I, I always write it down in, in the tatty book because I cannot go into the next negotiation with any thoughts, baggage or erroneous thoughts about an outcome. I can't do any of that. You have to go into all negotiation with your mind clear of past experiences, biases, conscious bias or or otherwise, stereotypes. You just have to clear clear your mind of that.
1: Is there anything different that you would recommend women consider in a negotiation um, than
0: men? Well comes to mind is there's a really helpful myth, and it is a myth, that women do not make good negotiators. And, and you can use that myth to your advantage, because so, some, some men may think that they will have the upper hand, upper hand purely based on that myth. But in general, if you think about some of the qualities that women have, we're nurturers. We, um, we like to be accommodating. We like to put together coalitions. Are we peacemakers? I, I, I don't know that would be the case, but we have lots of maternal qualities, which are also the qualities needed in, in a good negotiation. Um, so I think women have so many natural qualities. I'm gonna leave it leave it to your listeners to decide whether women are better listeners than men, but that can also be a matter for debate. But um it, it truly just is not true that women do not make good negotiators, but it's a helpful myth to work under. How, how is it helpful? How can you use that to your advantage? Only because people may go, go in not as prepared as, as they would. For me, it, I suspect in the early days it was a bit of a novelty. Once I always felt as if I had to overcome the novelty factor, but that was years ago. That, that doesn't happen anymore. And Sue's last tip on negotiation might surprise you. Be wary of compromise. Every situation will be different, but what I would say about compromise is sometimes both parties don't end up with what they want. Is it a lazy negotiation? Is it a cheap way of moving on, but actually not getting the best of what you really could do? So uh, it comes with a bit of a health warning, but there's nothing wrong with compromise. Just make sure you're not getting less than you deserve or less than you need. How can people practice their negotiation? It it really is important to practice, actually, Erica and and I still practice. And if you think about it, say somebody like a professional tennis player, just because they've won Wimbledon, they don't stop practicing, do they? So practice is continuous, and, and I would suggest in the beginning, if you're you're stepping out into this skill, you use it on your friends, but as you progress, use it on everyday situations and recognize that that you are actually practicing. But I, I still practice because it's it's important that I do. It would keep me sharp. Is this like you, you go to a
1: a department store and you say, hey, can I get the friends and family discount on <laughs> this one?
0: <laughs> Is that the kind of thing? No, I wouldn't do it in a department store. I probably have been known to do it um on holiday in markets, definitely, and I and I have been known to do it in um, in in jewellery quarters in in London and Birmingham, definitely. Yes, gotten some good deals. I can imagine. I, I think so. Just hope they didn't Google me whilst we were doing the negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what are your mottos and mantras in life? <laughs> Don't drink cheap wine would probably be the the personal <laughs> mantra, but in, in my work. <laughs> In my work, it would be change what you can control and influence what you can't. So if something is within your wits to actually change it, then get it changed. But that's not usually the case. It's a lot more complicated than that. So you have to work around that. Okay, I can't change it per se. But there's lots of issues, people, organisations, communities, societies, media. There's lots of issues that I can influence. So I, th- I think my second mantra would be um, seek to understand before you can be understood. And then, then my final third one would be keep going. <laughs> Just keep going.
1: Wait, You Want is written, produced, recorded by me, Eric Mallett, You can find me on Instagram, as always, Erica underscore mallet double L double T. And hey, did you know that there are so many episodes now that have been recorded and produced and that are out? You should go back and listen to them. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye.